From the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Our first reading this morning comes from the book of 1 Chronicles, chapter 29, verses 1 through 9. King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great. For the temple will not be built for mortals, but for the Lord God. So I have provided for the house of my God, so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and wood for the things of wood, besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, antimony, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones, and marble in abundance. Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own gold and silver, and because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. Three thousand talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, and seven thousand talents of refined silver, for overlaying the walls of the house, and for all the work to be done by artisans, gold for the things of gold, and silver for the things of silver. Who then will offer willingly, consecrating themselves today to the Lord? Then the leaders of ancestral houses made their freewill offerings, as did also the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of the thousands and of the hundreds, and the officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. Whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord into the care of Jehiel the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced because these had given willingly, for with single mind they had offered freely to the Lord. King David also rejoiced greatly. Amen. Thank you, Andrew. The second text that we have set before us this morning is from 2 Corinthians chapter 9. This is in the New Testament, and if you want to follow along in the Pew Bible, it can be found on page 190, or 172. Rather. Listen to and hear a word from God. Now, it is not necessary for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints, for I know your eagerness, which is the subject of my boasting about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you may not prove to have been empty in this case, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you in this undertaking. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange it in advance for this bountiful gift that you have promised, so that it may be ready as a voluntary gift and not as an extortion. The point is this, the one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. 
Each of you must give as you have made up your mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance, so that by always having enough of everything, you may share abundantly in every good work. As it is written, he scatters abroad, he gives to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. God who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for your great generosity, which will produce thanksgiving to God through us. For the rendering of this ministry not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also overflows with many thanksgivings to God. Through the testing of this ministry, you glorify God by your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ and by the generosity of your sharing with them and with all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God that he has given to you, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Loving and living God, may you open up this text anew to us. May you open up our lives even, that this would be for us a living and active and breathing word, a word of encouragement and hope and challenge that is for us a word from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may recall that two weeks ago, Tony started our sermon series on the way, stemming from the 2016 long-term strategic plan on the way points us back to the courageous and forward-looking conversations of this congregation, which eventually led to the campus master plan. In Tony's sermon, he introduced the idea of the sermon as well as these two scripture passages that we have now heard read for a second time, 1 Chronicles 29 and 2 Corinthians chapter 9. While we will be thinking through these passages in the coming weeks, each sermon will highlight one aspect that's related to giving, or what we might call a theology of giving. In the first sermon, Tony explored the generosity principle, and this week I want us to consider the voluntary principle. I want to open our story, or my sermon rather, with a story that I think illustrates so well the idea of the voluntary principle before returning to our text from 2 Corinthians. I'm sure that some of you know the short story called Babette's Feast, written by Isaac Dennison. This is one of my all-time favorite short stories, and I have returned to it again and again since I first encountered it in the summer of 2011. For those, that you, for those of you that may not know the story, let me summarize a few of the high points. The story takes place in a small village on the coast of Norway, 
It tells the story of two daughters who are the daughters of a rigorous and almost fanatical pastor whose religious convictions demand an austere lifestyle that denies all worldly pleasures. No fancy dress, no fancy food, and Jens, I'm sorry, but no fancy music. All of this austerity is demanded by the family's piety. Eventually, the sisters meet Babette, a refugee fleeing the Revolutionary War in Paris, and she becomes their housekeeper. After several years of service, Babette learns that she has won 10,000 francs in the French lottery. Now, this is no mega millions winning, but it would have been something like three or four hundred thousand dollars in our day and age. With her winnings, Babette could have quit her job or, or tried to live on her own or even return to France. But the story reaches its turning point in Babette's decision of what to do with her winnings. Rather than use the money on herself or to secure a better future, Babette insists on preparing a real French dinner for, their, for the sisters, their father's congregation, and members of the village. Being unfamiliar with the finer points of French cuisine, the pastor and his daughters do not know enough to protest what Babette has planned. Without their knowing, Babette prepares a menu full of succulent, indulgent, and expensive foods. At first, the guests are not sure what to do with the meal that has been set before them. They want to be polite and accept Babette's hospitality but the extravagance of the meal challenges their previous religious convictions. And so at the beginning, all of them take a vow that they will not actually enjoy the food or drink. Yes, they will participate, they will eat, they will consume, but they promise to avoid any actual enjoyment of the meal. But by the end of the night, they have been transformed. They share food and drink. They tell stories and make speeches. Babette's generosity and her feast has created a space for them to deepen relationships with one another and to see their world and their God in a different way. At the end of the story, we learn that Babette has spent all of her winnings on this one meal. And it is clear, however, from the story that there was no sense of obligation or expectation that she do this. She wasn't repaying a debt. She wasn't giving back something that she owed. She was giving voluntarily and extravagantly. One of those who attended the dinner, the General Lohenhulme, captures the real significance of what has just occurred in the meal. He has not only tasted of delectable food, 
he has tasted from the very grace of God. Intoxicated as much by the wine as by the dinner company, the general gives a speech about grace towards the end of the meal. And this is what he says. In our human foolishness and short-sightedness, we imagine divine grace to be finite. But the moment comes when our eyes are opened and we see and realize that grace is infinite. Grace, my friends, demands nothing from us but that we shall await it with confidence and acknowledge it with gratitude. Grace makes no conditions and singles out none of us in particular. Grace takes us all to its bosom and proclaims general amnesty. Grace demands nothing. It makes no condition. Instead, it embraces all of us. And whether Denison intended it or not, I can't help but think of connections between this amazing feast and the general's words and our own text from 2 Corinthians this morning. Just as a reminder, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 amount to a fundraising letter concerning a collection that Paul is organizing for poor Christians in Jerusalem. We learn about that collection and Paul's efforts for it in 1 Corinthians 16, here in 2 Corinthians, and again in Romans 15. From these passages and the back and forth nature of Paul's writing to the Christians in Corinth, it is obvious that Paul has exerted a good amount of effort and energy and anxiety in organizing this fundraising effort. We learn from these letters that the Corinthians had apparently promised in advance to contribute to this collection, setting aside resources each week during their common worship together. So eager were the Corinthians to participate that Paul bragged about their generosity in all the churches that he went to. They were his model givers. They were the, the sign of the fundraising campaign. But Paul has apparently become concerned that the, Christ, the Corinthians won't be able to or won't be willing to fulfill their commitment. And so he sends a few of his co-workers ahead of him to Corinth, and he's trying to ensure that neither he nor the Corinthians will be humiliated by their inability to contribute. I have to admit that on the surface, chapter 9 seems to suggest that Paul has every right to demand that the Corinthians give to the contribution, that they hold up their end of the bargain. It seems almost the opposite of the voluntary principle that I'm trying to teach about. They made a commitment, and they should make good on it. 
But if we follow Paul, that's not the logic, that's not the route that he takes at all. In fact, throughout chapters 8 and 9, Paul goes to great lengths to emphasize the voluntary nature of their gift. In 8.3, he highlights the voluntary giving of Christians in Macedonia. In 8.8, Paul says that he refuses even to command them to participate. In 9.5, he describes their previous promise as a voluntary gift and not as an extortion. And then in 9.7, he insists that the Corinthians not give reluctantly or under compassion, compulsion, but that they give cheerfully. While it is obvious that Paul is very committed to this effort and that he eagerly wants the Corinthians to participate and fulfill their promise, he doesn't try to strong-arm them into giving. He doesn't threaten excommunication or censure if they don't give. He wants them to give freely, to give joyfully. So how does he get there? What allows him to walk this fine line of reminding the Corinthians that they made this promise while not insisting on their compulsory giving? I think there are two aspects of this discourse in 2 Corinthians that are central, and both of these are important for our theology of giving. First and most importantly, Paul grounds Christian giving in the character of God. God's grace, exemplified by Jesus' faithful life, is the basis of all Christian generosity. In 2 Corinthians 8-9, Paul restates the mystery and miracle of Jesus becoming human in language of generosity. Although Jesus was rich, he made himself poor for all of humanity. Jesus' generous act becomes paradigmatic for human giving. Likewise, Paul tells the Corinthians that they can give generously because God will provide every blessing in abundance. In the final verses of chapter 9, Paul speaks of God's surpassing grace and God's indescribable gift. Paul redirects the Corinthians to the God of abundance in order that they might participate in the economy of abundance. One of my former teachers, Beverly Gaventa, captures the significance of Paul's thinking here quite nicely. She says, God's economy is not one in which the sum needed for salvation comes from a contribution from God, however large, and from a contribution of humanity, however small. Everything, rather, in this economy comes from a single source, that of God's grace. Christian giving is enabled by God's grace, and it reflects God's grace. Any act of giving from the smallest to the largest originates in God's constant, surpassing, and indescribable gift. Second, Paul reframes the ultimate meaning of giving. Their promised gift and their generosity 
don't ultimately or only serve the poor Christians in Jerusalem. Of course, it will provide for their daily needs and give them the vital substance that they need. But that is not the end or the real significance of the gift. Rather, Paul speaks of the gift as an act of priestly service that benefits God. As New Testament scholar David Downs says in his book, The Offering of the Gentiles, Paul depicts the collection in terms of cultic practice. He uses the metaphor of the temple and priests and sacrifices and offerings to provide the deeper meaning of what this gift actually is. Paul explains that Paul in, Downs explains that Paul invites the Corinthians to view their participation in the collection ultimately as an act of priestly service. Giving, Paul would say, at its most fundamental level is an act of Christian worship. Just as Babette's voluntary and costly gift caused the general to experience God's grace in a new way, so too our giving ultimately points to the grace of God. We don't give because we have to. We give because we know that we have been given so much by God. And we, be, and we give because we want others to experience God's surpassing, indescribable grace through our own acts of generosity. I want to close with a personal story that captures some of the spirit of 2 Corinthians 9. I know some of you know this already, but about five years ago, my mom was diagnosed with a brain disease called primary progressive aphasia. For my mom, the disease first showed up in an inability to bring thought to speech. She couldn't find her words. But as the disease has progressed, she has lost more and more of her independence and executive functioning. Last Thanksgiving, my dad shared his and my mom's Christmas list. My mom's list was simple. She wanted to get the whole family together again in one place, like we had done a few years earlier before her diagnosis in Oregon. But with eight kids or eight adults and six kids, some who are older than others, spread out across three states, this was no small task, especially given the ongoing pandemic at the time. One of the problems, not the least of which, was that none of us had enough space in our own houses to host the whole family at the same time or place. So we began getting to work. We brainstormed dates and possible locations for our gathering. And it was during this time that my wife, Janelle, who is also a pastor, reached out to a couple from her congregation. They had spent a weekend with that couple at that couple's lake house for a leadership retreat a few years earlier. She asked if they might be willing to let us rent their lake house for my family gathering, which was amazingly large enough for all parties included. 
And the response came back quickly and without any reluctance. Of course we could use their house. They would be delighted for us to use this space. And no, we didn't have to worry about paying any sort of rent for the space. I love these people. I am so grateful for their generosity and their gift. But at the end of the day, that gift channeled into thanksgiving to God. I'm grateful for the ways that they modeled the love and grace of God to my family in that weekend. They simply stewarded what God had given them. They sowed seeds of generosity with no expectation of return. And in doing so, they opened up a space where my family could experience the surpassing grace of God in a new and fresh way. I can only speak for my own experience, but I know that I praise God and give God thanks for that voluntary gift and what it meant to my family. Friends, we are not compelled or obligated to give. We are enabled by God's grace to reflect and model God's indescribable and extravagant gift. And through our giving, God opens up spaces and experiences where people can experience God's grace anew. And this grace overflows with many thanksgivings to God. Thanks indeed be to God for this indescribable gift. Amen and amen.